Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The man team. Mega Bears fan. Welcome again, Internet, to Polycast episode number 356, which is now once again broadcasting live on YouTube. Yay! Much rejoicing. I am one of your regular co-hosts, a Mega Bears fan, along with other regulars, Makalua. Who is now having to do sound cues live in, ah! The Mian team. All those nice coastal cities, all that thirst. And once again, our returning super special guest co-host, Dan Q. Are we recording episode 356 again? You said welcome back again to episode 356, and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you have a recording without me? Oh, no, that was just in case people heard the the blooper bit, like, a minute ago. Oh, I thought you were just checking to see if I was paying attention, you know, Mr. Teacher and all. Well, I was. That's silly. (laughs) Teachers don't pay attention. No, never. They demand attention. They don't pay it. Oh, I see what you're you're getting at. I like it. You know what else people appreciate? The fact that the show is continuing. Uh, Shout out to both uh, White Russian, who said really appreciate Polycast is delivering content again, has been missing for me lately, uh, in response to episode 354, and Victoria, uh, in giving some supplemental comments on espionage, navies, and air forces for episode 354, said great content once again. Awesome. So yeah, everyone should go check out those uh, forum threads and uh, yeah, look at the feedback. I'm sure Victoria has some great stuff on uh, espionage and navies because Victoria always has excellent uh, insight into the Very true. And uh, White Russian had a response to from episode 354 where I talked about if you can upgrade an aircraft carrier, you know, screenshot or it doesn't count. And his response was, hey, if you want to upgrade an aircraft carrier, you can use a great admiral if you've got one. Thanks for the cookies. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that is true. That is true. And I said, well, that's one sure fire way around the combat requirement, you know, assuming that Grand Admiral can confer such a benefit. But uh, yes, yeah, sure fire. <laughs> the question, though, yeah. is, is that worth burning an entire Great Admiral for? I guess it really depends on, well, in part, um, <laughs> you can retire a lot of Great Admirals on any particular unit, but then you would want to look at the Great Admiral. What era of unit would it provide a combat bonus for? And if it's already passed, then sure, why not? Yeah, and uh, apparently it was brought to my attention that uh, there may currently be a bug in Civ Six. go figure, in which uh, if you upgrade <laughs> it while it's within range of a general or admiral, it keeps its movement and combat bonuses for the rest of the game. So, uh, yeah, maybe that will be fixed at some point. No, like, no, I, I no, don't that fix that one. That's a great bug. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's a feature now. Yeah, well, it's a feature. Intended. So, yeah, uh, pro tip for, like, the current version of Civ Six: uh, when you're going to upgrade units, uh, make sure your Great General is nearby so that, uh, yeah, you don't need Great Generals anymore after that. <laughs> Polycast episode 356, working as intended. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Breaking the game is intended, apparently. Well, how do you know if you have a great game if you can't figure out a way to break it? Oh, all then great it, games break. It, it, then it's it becomes a great game to break. Or is it just a game that is good to break? Oh. Are you yeah. saying it's a game that's a hard habit to break? Yes, regardless. <laughs> all five people that listen to this podcast that are over 40. Got one. Uh, anyway. <laughs> all five, huh? There might be wow, six. Who knows? Oh, wow. So, 
so our market is from you know one you know you're exactly one second Sorry. old to 39 years 12 months <laughs> or 11 months excuse me <laughs> 29 oh, days whatever 30 Pretty days soon i'm gonna be too old for the channel yeah oh, me too actually wait wait wait. i thought our theme is i'm too young for this well, no annalee yeah i don't want to step on her stick <laughs> besides it would not seem a very genuine comment coming I could say something really mean about, you know, just genuine comments and Phil in general, but that, that may be a bit much, even for this show. I don't know. Oh, well, on that note. I'm a good ally. I think otherwise you're mistaken. Are we pausing for a moment for the dignity that is uh, the governor system? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, we were pausing for. <laughs> All right. Well, dignity of governors, I don't get that. <laughs> Uh, getting back to the newer players primer, we did leave off for another day talking about using governors, which uh, I guess you guys can help educate me, too, because mine is just stick Pingala in my capital and maybe pick up Victor if I'm having trouble attacking or, or defending or need some extra help. You know, when they come back at me after an attack uh, and outside of that, uh, maybe I remember to forget the name of Amani. I put her in whatever city-state I want to try and keep a good hold on, and that's about the extent of me with governors. Well, and don't forget to put uh, Liang in the city that's you plant next to a volcano, you know, just in case. Yes. Along with that uh, wonderful promotion that negates all damage from natural disasters. <clears throat> uh, Liang is also good in cities that are on floodplains uh, prior to having researched the tech to build dams, so uh, you don't just keep getting all your stuff destroyed by floods over and over and over again. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when it comes to governors, whether it's Amani, Liang, your mom. No, just kidding. I'm not actually imagine. Uh, <laughs> the purpose, uh, the purpose of a governor first and foremost is to bolster loyalty in a city. It's going to take three or five turns. Uh, it's going to be three turns if it's Victor, five turns for everybody else to establish a governor in a city, with the exception of the loyalty that's going to give you plus eight uh, in that city, which you can enjoy right away. And then as Mackie and Jason have already been getting at, each one of the governors in the game confers specific benefits to the city that it is currently in. Governors can be swapped around either uh, on purpose or... <sighs> Thanks, Siv, for getting my governor out of there with your espionage capability. Thanks so much. And each one of the governor has a specific upgrade path, just like a particular type of unit does in the game. But it's very, it's, it's actually specific to the governor. And it is possible over the course of the game to upgrade a particular governor all the way through. Uh, there are eight governors to choose from. You could end up adopting all of those particular governors. But beyond the loyalty question, it really does come down to, okay, once you are able through the civics tree to add a governor title, which could mean choosing a new governor, or it could mean promoting a governor that you already have 
in your allocation somewhere. That's kind of the important thing uh, to make certain that you assign the governor to a city. There's a governor panel that will allow you to see where they're currently established and also to be able to see what promotions they currently have. So you can decide what is best for you in this particular moment. I would like to make one uh, small little <clears throat> like UI feature request to Firaxis, which is I really wish there were like a notification by the uh, end turn button to tell you that you have unassigned governors uh, or a promotion available, because there are times where I put that off and then I forget about it. And then the little like exclamation mark next to the governor icon in the top left disappears the following turn. And then I go however many turns without a promoted governor or a newly assigned governor because I just forgot about it. Yeah, I think yeah, that's would... a problem in general with some of the alerts. If you dismiss them temporarily to handle something else back. Yeah, it's same with the uh, with changing your civics or changing your policies after you unlock a civic. If I like forget to do that at the start of the turn, a lot of times I'll accidentally hit next turn. And then it's save scum time. <laughs> And more specifically, you have seven governors to choose from, but if you happen to be the Ottomans, then you get the eighth, which is a unique governor. But I think we can set aside that specific, seeing as how we're continuing, really actually concluding with our uh, Civilization VI primer here. Again, intended for those on the console for Civilization VI, but again, for all of us, regardless of the platform that we're enjoying the game on, uh, to talk about the governors specifically. Now, Mackie, you mentioned uh, something about Amani, the diplomat. Yeah, because she helps, uh, depending on her promotions, she can both bolster, I mean, just follow, she helps you bolster your presence in a city-state without having to spend additional envoys on it. You'll see the AI place it all the time on someone that they want to hold on to. You can do the same thing. And as you promote her up, you can get extra resources out of the city-state. You can also put loyalty pressure on other civilization cities nearby. So if you got uh, a city in between yourself and an AI, actually not a bad idea to put her there so that they're already friendly disposed towards you in case the other civ declares first. Even then when you go in, then you've got some extra help if you wanted to run the unit. Yeah, not to mention, yeah, not to mention that the loyalty pressure part is great. Yeah, no, can you, can you make that a little easier for me to keep this city thing? Yeah, Amani can actually be a surprisingly versatile governor, and it doesn't look like that at first sight, because you, you look at her promotion tree and you think, oh, she's just good for putting in city-states. But the loyalty thing is uh, like not something to dismiss out of hand, especially if you're playing like a Civ like, say, uh, Eleanor uh, of England or France, where you've got that like bonus loyalty pressure and cities that flip instantly flip to you. Uh, because you can put her, even if it's not in a city-state, like in another player's city, and just let her uh, emanate, you know, loyalty pressure or, you know, weaken their loyalty pressure within their cities so that you can flip cities potentially without even having to go to war. And the thing about Amani is she is also unique in that she can be indeed assigned to a city-state, which is what she's intended to do, but if push came to shove, she could come home to one of your cities, in which case, all she's, quote-unquote, all she is doing is providing you with that plus additional eight loyalty, but situationally, it's nice to keep that in mind if I really need another governor because I'm losing loyalty on a fringe city, and it's going to be a while before I get another governor title. Yeah, if, uh, if you or have all of your like envoys in city states like pretty secure where you've got you know a pretty solid buffer of depending on the era of the game you know between like two and four or five uh envoys ahead of the next civ 
then yeah, you don't need to put her in a city state. You can put her in like a newly founded colony or something like that to uh, shore up your, your loyalty in your cities or, you know, out on, you know, a border city to ensure that one of your cities doesn't flip or in, like I said before, in the hopes of flipping the other players' cities towards you. And Jason, you brought up Liang. Yeah, Liang is probably the governor that I use most uh, because in Gathering Storm, uh, as we mentioned in, I think, the previous episode, uh, disasters can strike and disasters can include uh, flooding of floodplains or the eruption of volcanoes, hurricanes, blizzards, tornadoes, uh, all kinds of different things that are generally bad when they happen to your cities. Uh, but uh, Liang has a fancy pants promotion that allows her to basically negate all of the damage uh, from a particular disaster. So if you put her in a city that is next to or in an area that is prone to disasters, like, for example, an active volcano uh, or a floodplain before you have dams or, you know, in your, you know, tundra city that you built just so you can get that extra source of, you know, niter or whatever. Uh, and you don't want it to, you know, it's infrastructure to keep getting destroyed by blizzards, then yeah, you can put her in there, take that promotion, and that city is basically Im immune from disaster damage for as long as you leave her there. Uh, she also has... Her there, which uh, locks you out of some of the other useful stuff that you're getting from her, like um, getting builders where you need them with the extra charge, or producing districts more inexpensively, that kind of thing. So you... You are paying a cost for this disaster avoidance, and whether that's attractive is going to depend on your game settings. That's true. Now, if you have a city that's near the coast, next to a volcano, along a, and along a floodplain, <laughs> then uh, yeah, I think you've got a pretty golden spot for <clears throat> sorry uh, for Liang because yeah, you just turn that city into your your builder farm, and uh, yeah, you're immune from all the various damages that those terrain uh, are potentially going to cause. And you can take advantage of her aquaculture uh, ability, which allows her to create the, uh, what are they called? Fishing? Uh, fisheries. Fishing? Fisheries, yes. I was thinking fishing farm for some reason. But yeah, the fisheries, which you can build on water tiles, including lakes, uh, which is also useful. So she could also be helpful if you put her in a city that's near a lake. Uh, so you can boost the uh, yield of lake tiles, which uh, otherwise are usually not improvable. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, all the governors have a lot of flexibility. But, yeah, I, I use her in pretty much every game because I always have a city next to a volcano or on a floodplain or something where, yeah, I really do want to just protect it from uh, disasters. Uh, but yeah, you yeah. can also move her around. So again, if, if you have that volcano and the volcano is not active at the moment, because the game will tell you when it's active and the graphic will like smoke and stuff like that, because uh, the volcanoes, as far as I know, cannot erupt unless they first become active. So you'll always get that notification that, oh, hey, maybe you should move Liang over here. And then once the volcano becomes inactive, you can move her back to wherever else she's, you know, providing a benefit to you. Now, that volcano may or may not actually erupt in that time. You know, that's up to random chance. But at least, you know, you'll be protected. There is one volcano that's already always active. I can't remember its specific name. But other yeah. than that, yes, you're going to get that notification before it erupts. So you, you have some advance warning. That's, it's, you know, if, if it's active, then assume that it is going to, in fact, erupt at some point. Now, uh, Liang, like Jason, she is the governor I use the most, but it's not for the reason that Jason is doing it. And Phil pointed out that if you go Phil pointed out that if you go down the route of using it for uh, having it so that your improvements, buildings, and districts in the city can't be damaged by environmental effects, you're potentially losing out on some other things, at least for a period of time, 
Jason mentioned aquaculture. Now, if first and foremost not having all of your builders get one additional charge as soon as Liang is in place, that is fantastic, right? So you're going to go from four to five if you're almost any civilization. If you're China, you're going to go from five to six, which means you're cutting down on the number of builders you are going to need, and you're going to be able to build something else, get things improved more quickly. But then with aquaculture, unless you find yourself oh my gosh, I am surrounded by land, land, and more land. The fishery improvement is going to give you plus one food from coastal plots, so that one food can now become two food. But more importantly, that plus one food, if it is adjacent to a sea resource, which now means that that has three food if it's adjacent to a sea resource, the sea resource itself is going to get plus one food. And fisheries provide plus one production if Liang is in that particular city, which was something that was uh, added with Gathering Storm. So that is extremely powerful, and then you can take Liang and have her go on tour of all of your coastal cities, build these really nice fisheries. I mean, yes, there are sea wells later on in the game, but that's just it. It's later on in the game that builders can just improve in general, and you could make marginal or indeed otherwise completely not useful cities or near not useful cities very useful, particularly when she's in the city for the plus one production, but just being able to grow and then being able to have more tiles worked, even if that means ending up getting, not we hardly ever talk about specialists in Civ 6 at all, but you can start running those as well, and the city can become very powerful. That really large city could become your science powerhouse, your culture powerhouse, not even necessarily in your capital. Uh, Liang is fantastic. Uh, she is almost always the one that I will adopt first, there are always exceptions. Ah, uh, oh crap, someone just declared on me 10 turns in. That's fantastic. But you know, short of that, and maybe looking at somebody else, I find her to be the most versatile. Yeah, she's like really awesome for coastal cities because you, you can put her in, in the city, and then if you have the promotion that lets you build districts faster, then you can pump out your harbor you know, a lot quicker, especially if you have the veterancy of policy active, which boosts the production speed of both encampments and uh, harbors and their associated buildings. Um, and then, yeah, uh, pump out a bunch of uh, builders, again, preferentially with the, you know, serfdom policy, especially if you've got enough money or like faith where you can buy uh, those builders instead of produce them. And then they you're getting like five or six uh, charges from them. Build a bunch of fisheries, send them out across your empire, uh, and then, yeah, move her on to the next coastal city and, you know, turn that into a you know, fully functioning, you know, viable city with a harbor and improved tiles and everything. And Phil mentioned about the uh, improved production towards constructing districts in the city. And we've talked about before on this show that as time goes on, districts become more and more expensive. And you're thinking, well, in order for this city to be as useful as I want it to be to okay, have it be that I'm going to train a settler first and foremost and send it here as compared to even somewhere else. Moving her into the city as well and becoming zoning commissioner for plus 20% production towards constructing districts in the city can also add to the viability of that city. So it's kind of one of those governors that can go into the city first off to help it grow. Oh, fantastic. Look at all this food. But, uh, you know, that plus one production when she's in the city and you're trying to construct a district and it's, oh my gosh, this is like 50 or 60 turns. Uh, hey, you know, she's cutting that down by a fifth. She could be back in that city or stay in that city longer even for her to even be more viable to help you get that newer city constructed up and running and being useful for your empire. She is just, it is just win, win, win with Liang. 
Yeah, she's great for coastal cities. She's great for cities uh, that are prone to disasters. She's great for establishing a new city because of that uh, district production bonus. And of course, you know, she's good as a, a builder uh, farm. It's it's a darn shame there's only one of her. <laughs> we need multiple copies of her very much. <laughs> I don't know. Some of the other ones are good, too. And uh, the wide opinion is that Liang is not one of your first picks. It is true that that is, yeah, that is the general community consensus. And this is one of those times where I would disagree with the community. However, however, the one that is considered uh, the best, I believe overall, Magnus, the steward, I understand why he is considered valuable. I wouldn't necessarily even put him as number two, but he's definitely like third on my list, if not second, depending upon your game circumstance. If I remember correctly, wasn't he uh, nerfed at one point? So he was even better when oh yes, his, uh, when governors governors came out in uh, Rise and Fall, right? Yes, or were they added in Gathering? Yeah, so they were originally in Rise and Fall. They were a lot of more changed in Gathering Storm, and yeah, I think he was nerfed because like it used to be plus one hundred percent for chopping, and I think it was reduced to fifty. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So if we're but, talking yeah. Gathering Storm, this is all in the context of Gathering Storm. If we were talking about Rise and Fall, then I probably would put. Magnus even ahead slightly of Liang, and if not, then definitely a strong second. I mean, he's still strong, and I think this was a good change because it makes a more uh, interesting strategic choice, even though some people say, well, Dan, you just said that you almost always choose Liang. How is that necessarily an interesting strategic choice? That's beside the point right now. But Magnus is still very, very strong, and that's what you're going to get as soon as you put Magnus into a city, plus 50% yield from plot harvest and feature removals in the city, which early on in the game, we talk about the snowball effect before, absolutely go ahead and harvest that stone. You know, right, go ahead and harvest that mar- uh, that marble. You're going to be able to put more into it more quickly than necessarily just improving, having that improved, and then you know using that increased uh, hammer production uh, throughout the rest of the game. But here's the rub: like you need builders in order to chop and harvest, and uh, who helps get you more builders? Uh, you know, Liang gets you that thirty percent, thirty three percent more. Uh, charges so like you know the, the, there is a little bit of a chicken and egg uh, thing going with these two where okay do i want liang first so i can pump out a bunch of builders and then bring in magnus later and then use those builders to chop or do i want magnus first so i can just start chopping now with my builders with their measly three charges and then and then i'll just do liang later and then my my next you know round of builders will all be plus one charge or you know it's a that is a tough balancing act and it's really going to depend on your situation obviously if you're in a starting location where you don't have very many forests you don't have very many uh jungles you don't have you know like you're you're better working your resources rather than chopping or harvesting them then yeah you know magnus can definitely wait but even if you do wait like he's also excellent for city growth because he gives you those uh, bonuses to uh, domestic trade routes where trade routes to the city with Magnus uh, get, uh, what is it, like bonus to food, I, I want to say. Um, which again is very awesome for your young empire as it's growing. Yeah, I would say if you're landlocked or most of your early, in particular early empire is going to be 
landlocked, then you're probably better off with Magnus because then you can use that plot harvesting, for example, to then churn out more builders, which sure, okay, they might have one less charge, but you're probably still going to be a little farther ahead at that point when you're trying to build your cities up and you're trying to get that snowball effect and then maybe have Liang come in after that. But if you're going to have more coastal cities, then I would argue Liang and then have Magnus come in right after, you know, have Liang give you that additional builder and then send that builder off to the city that you want to harvest those features and put Magnus in there, which could even temporarily mean moving Liang out, putting her into another city that could give you some nice builders, and then have Magnus come to you know that, that first city or whatever and do all that harvesting. And then Magnus could go out onto those other cities and start giving you, you know, a boost in that city, which of course is helping boost your overall empire with your production. Yeah, both of these governors are like great for the early game. Like you, you I, I would say you honestly cannot go wrong with uh, picking either of them as your first or second governor. Yeah, I would say the difference is: are you using them? You know, is it is it a, is it a very good governor use, or is it an excellent or a superb governor? And that really comes down to you understanding what you want to do in your empire and your empire, and what your priority is. Because very early on in the civics tree, you're going to be able to get a couple of uh, governor titles right before you get into political philosophy and you start looking at your first government after chiefdom. So that may very well mean is that Magnus and then promoted for, uh, for again, to go from the groundbreaker, which is the plot yields, to then get you the additional growth in the city? Or is that Liang and promoted again? Or is it Magnus and Liang? I think if you, it can get a little more interesting early on if you find a whole bunch of city states, city states that you really want, and a Manny can look kind of attractive. Uh, and Victor, I think maybe we get into uh, next, I would suggest, can be very good if you're finding yourself under siege, uh, or either someone's coming in or you're trying to, to push them out. But really, to me, Victor and Amani kind of become those secondary considerations in the early game after, is it Magnus or is it Liang? Or... I just want to say, if you, are, if you have land to expand, the ability to chop settlers and not lose your population after they're out is a pretty big boost. Uh, right, in the land grab phase from Magnus. He, he's also great if you com- uh, in that regard if you combine him with the uh, ancestral hall uh, government plaza building, which is I think like fifty percent towards settlers, and then every yes. new city you found like starts with a free builder. In which case, uh, Liang becomes less important because you're getting free builders anyway. I mean, having an extra charge on those free builders would be nice, but you know, free stuff is free stuff. So yeah, if you're playing as an expansionist civ like uh, you know Rome or uh, Phoenicia or something like that that uh, you know specializes in building a lot of cities, then um, yeah, Magnus uh, is very attractive because you can pump out more settlers and like I said, you combine them with the ancestral hall. Uh, and then there's policies later that uh, you know give you like free production or not free production, uh, free population in city in uh, newly founded cities and stuff like that like you can put all this together and you know your your magnus city just becomes a settler farm and uh you just create this massive sprawling empire 
And if you find that you've otherwise kind of been pushing on Liang, it's not as strong as Bangness, but of course you can be running the Colonization Civic, which is going to give you plus 50% production to settlers. Yes, the settler trained is going to consume a population, and if you then can get Ancestral Hall, which is from your government plaza, then you're going to get a free builder. So the nice thing about this is it really come... Are you, are you one step forward or are you two steps forward when you're looking at Liang and Magnus. And if you're in an expansionist situation and you're able to expand, like I can go and I can build these cities and I can hold these cities uh, because people who are nearby me aren't as powerful as I am or they uh, are more powerful or as powerful as I am, but they're far away. As long as you can hold on to that land in the immediate future, then yes, absolutely having Magnus. Uh, with hence the provision uh, promotion we're talking about here, where settlers trained in the city do not consume a population, can also get you ahead and even probably slightly more than Liang. And then there are situations where it could be Liang getting you ahead, slightly ahead of Magnus. So they are both very well balanced to uh, complement each other. Yeah, and I definitely lean towards Liang for Gathering Storm. If you're still playing Rise and Fall, then Magnus is, uh, is probably the mm. one to go for at the beginning. Uh, but uh, one of the other things in Gathering Storm that I think subtly changed the calculus of um, you know the value of harvesting and chopping is the inclusion of the natural disasters. Because if you chop or harvest a, a resource or a feature that was generating production... Right. You get that one time lump sum, you use it to build something in your city. But then if there's a disaster that comes along and, you know, say you you chopped in order to finish building your uh, campus. Right. But then uh, the volcano erupts and it pillages your campus. Well, now you don't have the production from that forest to rebuild the campus. So that there is, I think, that extra consideration in Gathering Storm where you, you do want to be a little bit careful about chopping all of your production generating uh tiles because then if a disaster happens and it pillages your stuff or somebody declares war on you and their units pillage your stuff you don't have the production to rebuild it and i think that's another thing that gathering storm like changed that made magnus's chopping power like a a little bit less you know overpowered as it was in rise and fall and as much as i talked about maybe talking about uh victor next i'm 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 rethinking that because as you're talking about the change between rise and fall and gathering storm where magnus is still shiny but not as shiny as he was in rise and fall oh my gosh did gathering storm improve pingala the educator considerably no i'm not talking about the initial benefit about the increase in science and culture generated in the city which used to be 20 but is now 15 percent and of course, we're talking early game, you're dealing with percentages, you're thinking like, ooh, la-di-da. But after that, the next set of promotions, the connoisseur, which is now plus one culture per turn for each citizen in the city, and to a secondary extent, I think researcher, which is plus one science per turn for each citizen in the city. But my goodness, you can have a very considerable boost to your culture by placing Pengala in your large population cities, which may very well be something that you want to do after you send Liang there and get all of the fisheries set up. And, oh, look at this huge pop. I'm now at 8, 9, 10, what have you. And then suddenly you could have a boost of like 40, 50% or more, particularly from your culture, if we're talking the early game, because you may not have as many means to boost culture early on as you say do science but those two are are absolutely fantastic i love that this change was put into gathering storm so upon even further further reflection even in you know preparation for this episode after 
as a general approach after you know Magnus and Liang, hello Pengala. Well, and another thing too is if you're playing with a civilization that uh, uh, specializes in generating a lot of great people, or you're going for like say the tourism culture victory that requires you know spamming out a bunch of uh, you know great artists and and so forth, then the next promotion for Pingala I think is like a bonus towards great people generation. I don't remember what the exact bonus was. It's, uh, yes. but it's a flat double. Yeah, it's, it's plus one hundred percent. Yep, and all you have yeah, to do is take game. connoisseur or researcher. So, right, yeah. so if, if you get that early in the game, I mean, you are like there. You have a good shot of like basically getting any great person like you want because the great people in Civ Six has that. Uh, also, is one of the things that has that snowballing effect where the the person who mm-hmm. starts getting great person points early <laughs> just has such a huge advantage towards getting all of the great people, especially great people the get art- great people. <laughs> yeah, especially the artist ones where, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I go into like the diplomacy thing to like try to trade for, uh, you know, like some like sculptures or paintings or whatnot. And I find that like, you know, like Eleanor or someone like that has all of them. And Eleanor is basically else, the Louvre. <laughs> yeah. And everyone else has nothing. They have like maybe one work of writing right in their uh, <laughs> in their cities. And then Eleanor's over here with like. 30 different like paintings and sculptures and works of music and all that stuff. And it's just like crazy. And as we will get to later on, if you're getting towards the end game and we're talking about victory condition and you're looking at pursuing a science victory, he also will give you plus 30% production to all space program projects in the city. So Pengala becomes someone that potentially could become very useful in the late game for that specific reason. But even if not, my gosh, Pengala is kind of one of those people that I find a city for him and I park them there because if they tend to be the largest city early on in the game, then they tend to manage to hold that proportionately with regards to every other civ I have in the game, unless I'm on the warmongering path and I capture a really large city, for example, then maybe he'll swap at that point. But he's just kind of like, find him, park him, rake in the culture, rake in the science and or science and get even more great people. Yep. Yeah, that's what that's where I was talking about in the beginning. I, especially the multiplayer games, when I want to have a boost to the science and also to get a little boost to the culture, and I get him first. I park him in my capital. I at least get one of the two, depending on whether I need more science or more culture, and then go ahead and get the great person thing early because that way I have a better chance of snatching them away. I mean, I know yeah, I- Magnus, Magnus, Magnus for the production steamroll, but the it's easier to set up for cities. You can look around and pick cities to get good production, and it's a whole lot harder to always always have science team or culture. Culture, I would find even particular. Yes, you can pick up Pingala later, though, once you've grown a city. Yeah, I don't know that I would ever take Pingala as my first governor option. No, like, I wouldn't either. I, I I could definitely see going like from Magnus, you know, getting like a promotion or two for Magnus, and then. Pingala maybe being my second because you know like having the the being able to produce settlers without losing population and having the growth bonuses from the trade routes for Magnus will give me large cities and then and earlier on yeah yeah and then I put Pingala in one of those you know large cities and uh you know that's again they they work very well together just like uh Magnus and Liang work very well together and of course Pingala and Liang work very well together as well with the uh, aquaculture because then again you get to generate massive uh, coastal cities with lots of population. And uh, 
Jason, you were, of course, mentioning about the, you know, the great works of art, music, writing, etc. And then Pangala also has a promotion for plus 100% tourism from those great works. So you get more great people, which get you more great works, and then you can get more tourism from said great works. <laughs> yeah, That's if you're fantastic. planning a, a culture victory from the start of the game, then you you definitely want to pick uh, Pingala as probably your your second uh, governor after Magnus or Liang situationally. I mean, okay, I'd rather get these cities built first and then pick them up when I'm growing. But well, yeah, we, I mean, that, well, that's what I meant. You know, you you take Magnus and or Liang, and then you know you get some cities established, and then you you look at getting pink or Victor. Oh yes, over to Victor. Victor's an interesting one because Victor's situational, but very good in the situations where Victor's usable. <laughs> the uh, the city garrison's not very impressive. It's nice if you're being rushed, you can certainly mm. help uh, tank with your city. But the garrison commander, which gives you uh, five combat strength within the city's territory, is very nice defensively and offensively because you also get the loyalty within nine tiles. So this is one of the only ways to use a governor to get more than eight loyalty from governors, because you can put a different governor in the target city to get loyalty, and then you can get additional four for Magnus being stationed nearby. But and this then, also means that you can fend off a rush uh, much more readily, the plus five strength. And, and regarding you capture a city, you can put the uh, put Victor in that city. He goes there within three turns because he's the only uh, governor that establishes in three rather than five. And you can probably grind the AI down either in one of your own cities or in the city you take from the AI, uh, kill its units, and then just move it on its cities after that. So that combat bonus is pretty relevant too. Uh, it, and these are not a lot of investments to get to his first, uh, to his tier one promotion. So and with really nice in military game. With regard to that, um, that combat bonus for your units, <clears throat> as I understand it, the way that, um, Civ 6 works, uh, when determining, like, range, uh, for things like that, uh, if a unit starts its attack within range of something like that, it, uh, it gets the bonus. So, if your unit is in, if you have a melee unit that's in your city's territory and you attack an enemy unit that is, you know, one tile over in their territory, I am pretty sure you yes. still get the bonus. And it's the same way with generals, where if you are, you know, you're, you get the bonus within two tiles. So if your melee unit is two tiles away from the general and you attack an enemy unit that is three tiles away from the general, since your melee unit is two tiles, you get the combat bonus. So you, you can use that, yeah, to strike into enemy territory. Uh, the other uh, situational thing I like about Victor, uh, defense logistics. Yes, we got the carryover that the city cannot be put under siege, but if you're going on the offensive at some point, or you have now reached a new particular uh, level of technology and say, okay, now I need iron for my swordsman, or uh, I need uh, miter for my musketman, Defense Logistics, every strategic resource that you have improved is going to give you plus one additional per turn. So that's like having another half mine of that, that particular resource in, in that city. So you're going to want to place Victor. If you have the one of those cities that has, I mean, if you only have one source of Niter, then that can, in fact, be valuable because now you're going to get three a turn instead of two a turn, which means you're going to be able to get more musket men more quickly. It's even better and even more desirable if it's, oh, hey, let's just have that snowball. I've got two sources of Niter. No, I'm not getting four a turn. I'm now getting six. And that, as situational as it is, in that situation, I like defense logistics 
almost as much as I like Garrison Commander. The nice thing about Garrison Commander, as Phil pointed out, is Gathering Storm specifically actually added the uh, uh, four loyalty per turn towards your civilization for other cities within nine tiles of it. In addition, defending within your city's territory, you get plus five combat strength. But defense logistics can also be a very, very good supplement at certain points in the game if you are in need of that and you have a city that can set you up with that. And if you combine that with... uh, Strategic resources, Magnus is your man because strategic resource discount of 80% is going to save you a lot more. Uh, assuming you have any strategic resource income at all, uh, that, that's going to get you more units than uh, Vector will. And in but, either I mean, case, promotion is, is also not. In, in either case, if you're looking to get uh, lots of strategic resources because you need to build an army real quick or, or whatever, then uh, you can also combine those with the uh, uh, social policies, uh, equestrian orders, or drill manuals, which I think adds an extra one to everyone across your empire. So you can stack that with the benefits of either you know Magnus or Victor to get even more uh, uh, strategic resources. And then if you end up generating too much, hey, you can always uh, sell them. Certainly the benefit that Phil's talking about, the Black Marketeer with Magnus, where you have got costs are discounted by 80% is fantastic for, yes, more of those units. The only advantage that, I won't say the only advantage, but the advantage that Victor has is with the plus one additional per turn is those units that you are constructing with that additional resource that's accumulated could be within any city within your empire, as opposed to just the city that uh, Magnus happens to be in. Is that right? Or is it actually... Yeah, that's that. So it is very situational, but it's kind of one of those, it's fantastic that the units can be discounted by 80%, but I'm only getting like two or four of these a turn. There may be a period of time where, okay, it's advantageous to, I mean, heck, why choose one when you could potentially have both if you're really in that situation, right? You could find yourself where, hey, I'm going to get uh, additional plus one per turn from this particular, from all these mines of my iron and the niter, et cetera, oil, whatnot. That's the other thing. It's it's accumulating strategic resources full stop. It's not set for any particular era. And then you could also have Magnus, who is then in that particular city, getting them discounted by 80%. So even better. Yeah, he's uh, Victor's more styled on just continuing the offensive as well. Because you, like, you'll see, if you, as you go down the promotions, like you, in addition to giving cities an extra range strike per turn... You get a promotion out of military units trained in city, and that can include um, foreign cities that you've captured. So you can replenish uh, by buying stuff there and get the promotion that way. Yeah, one of the things that does make Victor kind of tricky, and that like always makes me hesitant to uh, uh, assign him and promote him, is uh, that if you're playing well, uh, you're not getting much from the benefits because if your city is never being attacked or being put under siege because you are defending it well enough, you know, on the front lines, then a lot of Victor's abilities just kind of, you know, peter out. Uh, yeah, you're not getting true, the loyalty. Though, because you can put him in cities you capture. Well, right, that's true. But like I said, if again, if, if you're playing very well, then, you know, there's you're not going to have much resistance to, uh, when you capture that city. But yeah, that's usually where he goes. Is he's going to go in the city that you just captured to either shore up loyalty or protect it from counterattack. Yeah. It's also very nice because because Victor is situational. In that situation, in that moment, that city you just captured is having loyalty pressure issues. Yes, you could move one of your other governors out, but then you're going to be losing all that they have got. Like, do I really want to move Magnus or Liang when I'm getting 
you know, everything else that we talked about in that city, when right now it's something that I need for loyalty. And then once he's established, having that additional combat strength on top of it, he is great for moving around for those type of situations where it's, I just need this edge so I can grow the city so there's more loyalty. I can repair the monument or build the monument, for example, as the case may be for loyalty to be able to get a unit in there and garrisoned and swap my policies so I get you know additional loyalty in there just to help kind of bridge that gap. He's very, very, very mobile in that respect. Okay, and then I guess... Uh, <laughs> wow, way to be dismissive, Dan. Then there's the other two. Um, <laughs> which I, I suppose the next on my list of, okay, I, I can see the benefit, would be Reyna the Financier. Unless you're going religious, and then, of course, you're understandably going to be all about uh, Moksha the Cardinal. But what about Reyna? I actually have had some games where Reyna has been uh, my first pick, and it usually depends. It depends a lot on the map and the civilization, because if you start on like a location that has just a lot of uh, features on it, then uh, her forestry management promotion is I think it's like plus two gold on every unimproved terrain feature. So if you've yes. got a bunch of jungles or forests, or uh, the big one is floodplains, because floodplains are a terrain feature. So if uh, you haven't farmed those floodplains yet, you know you're, you can be over there chopping all your forests, but all those floodplain tiles that might be going along your city, two gold on each one. Like that uh, can be a significant boost uh, early in the game, because you can start using that gold to build buildings and build uh, units and... Uh, get uh, newly founded cities up and running more quickly. Um, and especially if you're playing as like the Maori, right, where you have the the civ uh, bonuses incentivize you to not chop things. Uh, and you are also getting extra production from like forests and stuff like that to begin with. Then, uh, yeah, like throwing her in a city just surrounded by woods or jungles uh, can make that city like filthy, stinking rich. I gotta say, the, the idea that the uh, promotion is called forestry management and you're getting huge benefit from floodplains is pretty amusing but uh, a little good. bit uh, and then that that ability also applies to natural wonders uh, as long as they're workable so if you've got um, uh, oh gosh what's a workable natural wonder like something like the dead Arcatel. sea or something like that I think yeah or something like that that uh, uh, you're actually able to work then you're going to get uh, two gold from each workable tile of that natural wonder as well so if you've got one of those um uh, like four tile, you know, workable, like the, oh, I, I forget all their names, but, um, you know, like the swampy looking one, like stuff like that. Uh, then, yeah, she's also good for that city as well. Her, uh, she also has Harbor Master, which is another level one promotion for Reyna, double adjacency bonuses from commercial hubs and harbors in the city, which there is also the social policy that allows you to do that. So situationally, if you've got a really good commercial hub adjacency, you could be running that social policy as well. And instead of it being plus two, okay, now it's plus four, okay, now it's plus eight. I really wish that she gave you a production bonus towards building those districts as well, because that would actually make her really awesome for putting her in like a newly founded city because she uh, also expands the borders more quickly. And if you could get like, you know, a discount towards building commercial hub or harbors, which a lot of times are the first districts that I'm building in a newly founded city, unless I need like, uh, you know, it's a frontier city where I need like an encampment or something to defend myself. Uh, you know, I want that trade route. So, uh, yeah, she's very good in cities like that. 
Yeah, which is where, okay, you want the discount, then we're back to Liang and the level two of the zoning commissioner. Whereas, I mean, yes, Reina does have the contractor, which allows you to uh, gain uh, districts from gold, but it's level three. And they're expensive. Yeah, and they're also expensive. So it's like, eh, hmm. If only I, I, she I actually would let me buy districts with faith. That would, uh, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, you're, you're probably going to have more uh, expendable faith <laughs> than you are going to have expendable gold, as it were. Yes, I yeah. see where you're going with that. Yeah, it, it's just a couple <laughs> tweaks to Reina, and like I think she would be like on par with the other ones. But as she stands now, I, I think she's a, a mid tier, you know, governor at best. Like she she's good situationally, but uh, in general, you know, all the other ones that we've talked about previously are, are probably going to be better for you. Yeah, after, you know, the primary that is Magnus and Liang and then uh, secondary Pingala and probably even throw in there uh, Victor and Amani, uh, Reina's kind of tertiary for me, where she really gets more exciting the farther down you go the promotion for her. But then that means that I'm not choosing something else. Right, because that's kind of the thing when we're we're ranking these particular governors and what we think is the best. It's well, this is pretty good, and okay, it's only two promotions down. But what am I getting? Am I up? actually going to use this too? Yeah, and for how long am I going to use it? What am I really going to get out of it? Because- yeah, those government promotions are few and far between. So, like the opportunity cost of taking something that's marginally useful compared to something you know, or getting a different governor entirely that's going to be more useful for the whole game. I mean, the opportunity cost is huge. I mean, if you want to challenge yourself and say, like, hey, I, I, rather than going up in a difficulty level, I'm going to, you know, choose a governor and, a, and or a promotion that's not optimal to me. Well, then, you know, have at it. But that's a very <laughs> specific play style, play approach, which I guess then leads us to Moksha the Cardinal. Now, I am certain there are some people that are going to say, wow, Polycast, way to make it sound like you think uh, religious victory is crap. Well, I'm not going to go that far, but again, it's an opportunity cost thing, and if you are not going down the religious victory path, I just don't understand why you would do this, because after all, the base improvement is religious pressure to adjacent cities is 100% stronger from this city. So if you don't have a religion, or you inherit, air quotes, uh, a religion, as it were, from a city that uh, one or more cities from another city that you have conquered, then it kind of becomes, well, what the point? But maybe with that preface ahead, if you are going religious, okay. Well, I, th- I think he also has some benefits that might be helpful in um, encountering religious victories. So if, if I, I could maybe see there being fringe cases where you're not necessarily pursuing a religious victory, but like one of your neighbors is and like you can't really compete with them militarily uh in which case like some of the promotions that give your units extra theologic combat strength uh or the uh uh citadel of god which ignores religious pressure like that's something that could maybe potentially like stop that other players you know religious victory attempt in its tracks assuming that you're generating enough faith to even be able to build inquisitors and apostles to do the theologic combat i still say that the best counter to opposing religious pressure is military yes <laughs> which is why i think I, jason preface with if you can't do it militarily then i'm, I'm, I'm i mean like, okay like, with that qualification uh, oh, unless your okay. military is completely wiped out you should be able to condemn 
any of their religious units that come into your territory, which is one of the things that, yeah, makes this like a super fringe case that I'm talking about here. But like, I can hypothetically see a game where, you know, that could maybe have made the difference. But again, it's, it's such a fringe case, you're just better off going with something else. Like in general, I don't even look at Moksha unless I did actually found my own religion. And I am intending on playing with aggressive, you know, religious play. Uh, like if I'm a, a leader that, uh, you know, specializes in, in religious play, then Moksha is like, okay, maybe I'll adopt him, but or uh, <laughs> assign him. But even then, like, I'm still looking at, like, Magnus and, uh, <laughs> and Liang and uh, Pingala. Has anyone played with the Citadel of God promotion? That Not from the ignoring religious pressure standpoint, but from getting the faith from construction and building. Uh, has anyone tried to, to cycle that and keep getting faith and then putting that faith into other things and getting more? So you basically have a 25% reduction across uh, quite a few constructs uh, utilizing faith. I've never given that a try. But to me, that's the only thing in this tree that really looks usable outside of extremely niche scenarios. And unfortunately, I would say it's a tier two unlock. I would say the other one would be, and of course, yeah, the one you're talking about here comes at a level two promotion for Moksha, but a level one, uh, the Divine Architect, uh, which is kind of getting to what you wish Reyna had there, Jason, which is allow city to purchase districts with faith. If I guess if you're sitting on a lot of faith, then okay, but I'd be kind of more inclined to a focus on my faith output on you know, discounted great people, uh, and also using the government plaza, whatever that second, I believe it's a second tier promotion that allows you to purchase land units with faith. I'd probably be going with that first, but it might be neat to, to play around with that. And no, Phil, I haven't played around with the, the Citadel of God thing for the 25% production uh, construction cost when finished buildings. I think that would be interesting to kind of run through, and maybe it can be more situationally powerful than we think of, but it just kind of rolls back into, I think, the opportunity cost that more often than not, you're not going to be ahead for doing that. You, you know, it can be kind of lulzy, but... And you got to uh, take two basically dead promotions just to access it because it's a tier two. It's the same problem with Divine yeah, Architect, which is tier three. Like, it takes some time to get enough uh, unlocks on governors to like, get all the governors you want and get the uh, really high priority promotion uh, online. Like, we were talking about a lot of the, the good stuff you can get on governors. Uh, but when it comes to expansion timing, like, it's not that easy to get several governor promotions fast enough to benefit from settlers, for example. On Deity, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, they're just going to settle the land before you can get there. So th that will affect your decision making. And uh, putting off more beneficial governor promotions to go down Moksha doesn't seem very attractive. To maybe, maybe for a religious victory, but even then, I feel like a religious victory is optimally done alongside military expansion to control cities. Yep. Which makes it a lot more practical to swap religions out that way. Yeah, and with regard to the divine architect, like when I look at it, I kind of see it as a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. Because if you aren't playing religiously, right, and you just want it because you've got a crap ton of excess faith that you're not doing anything with, and you want to, you know, build uh, districts with it, well, you uh, like you said, you got to go through essentially three dead uh, governor promotions because you got to spend one to assign the governor to begin with. Then you got to promote him twice 
uh, before you even get to that promotion, and uh, eh, it's probably not worth it. But then on the other end of the spectrum, if you are playing a religious game, like you're actually spending your faith, right? You're you're training missionaries and apostles and inquisitors, and you're building religious buildings uh, in your cities, which all require spending faith. And then again, you're probably also you know going with the uh, patronizing great people with excess faith so are you even going to have enough faith in a religious game to get a benefit from that ability like you'd even that seems like a fringe case then. to me you'd probably take patron saint if you're actually doing your combat right but again imagine. like the, the point that i'm getting at is like when would you ever use divine architect like what is the use case for that promotion yeah it's tough maybe someone uh maybe someone will hear this episode and Give us something we're not considering, but I consider Moksha one of the weaker governors. That said, I will still take uh, just the unlock for Moksha pretty often, just for loyalty. Because if you're yeah, if you're playing a religious game, then yeah, definitely. Or a military game, because you like you like you guys have said, like you don't want to move good governors that are providing you very strong bonuses in other cities out of those cities and uh, have them just trying to establish in a fringe border city you took because uh, of loyalty pressure. Whereas Moksha, if you're not if you're not doing the religious game, just slapping Moksha in a city is pretty useful for loyalty. And you can still get the benefit from Victor's plus four loyalty at range then. So now you're getting plus eight from Governors, and you only spent one point for this. So while I wouldn't take it early, I would still unlock Moksha eventually in a military game, just because you can you have an extra loyalty uh, person that way. And if he's actually able to spread your religion, then you've also got potential uh, synergies with uh, things like the Crusade uh, religious belief, which I think is a combat bonus against uh, units that follow the same religion, or the uh, alternatively the religious wars uh, social policy, which I think is a combat bonus against units of a different religion. I, I, did I get those right? Uh, so in those sorts of cases, you know, you, you know, Moksha maybe works well with with. Uh, those sorts of military strategies where you're using your religion as a military tool, uh, either to spread it uh, to, or to attack players who are opposing religions. Gosh, we could phrase this as, you know, moksha is a tool, but that's, that's a bit mean. I guess it kind of comes down to moksha needs to be combined with either like another governor or uh, another you know, approach in, in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, like the domination, for example, victory condition, then, okay, then he can be helpful. And yeah, kind of as Phil's saying, you know, at a certain point, if I am, you know, raffle stomping, I need another governor. Victor's already assigned. I like to be able to, you know, it's like I've already captured the city, but Victor needs to stay there for a few more turns. Oh my gosh, this city's going to flip. Okay, Moksha, you know, you're free loyalty. So at that point, you, it has absolutely nothing to do even with your base promotion other than the fact that you are a governor. Then, okay, yes, the def definitely useful to take. And in some cases, better than, oh, well, I'm just going to continue promoting uh, Liang or Magnus. Well, at some point, no, no, go ahead and take Moksha. Have that for that fringe city. Have that for that promotion. So again, your other governors which I would, again, also place Victor ahead of, of Moksha more often than not, to continue doing what it is that they're doing. Uh, and another thing to look at with Moksha is the laying on hands uh, promotion, which changed between Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm. And Rise and Fall, it, it um, automatically healed religious units in the city. In Gathering Storm, <clears throat> if I'm reading this correctly, it looks like it was upgraded to all units. So if, say, for instance, you're in a situation where you you had Moksha, you don't have Victor, and somebody, you know, declares on you, you move Moksha into, you know, one of your frontier cities, and 
pull all your units uh, back and you're healing them in one turn. And that could also make a huge difference in terms of like making, you know, your uh, uh, 300 Sparta stand, you know? How exactly does that work? Because that's interesting. If you are defending a city, yeah, because your units heal if they don't take an action, right? So you can just leave them fortified. Does this imply that if you, they don't kill your unit in one turn, it's immortal? Like, they cannot kill it? That's how I'm reading it. That's, uh, that's interesting. This is a little bit less useful on the offensive because it takes five turns to establish the governor and get the benefit. Yes. Um, but if you are trying to hold off an attack, it, it, it can be pretty obnoxious to kill units that are fortified in, like, forests and mountains or both, or forests and hills or both. For the rare chance you build a fort. It, like, <laughs> if they're shooting you, and you're getting XP for that, you could just, like, let it happen. <laughs> yeah, farm it. It's for three uh, promotions, it makes it be harder to kill. Oh, jet bombers. <laughs> oh, that's kind of late game. You're not going to be farming XP <gasps> yeah. in the time of jet bombers. You're probably going to be using jet bombers. Or, I think this. Uh, I think this would be. Well, I think this would also be more useful in a multiplayer. And this is really fringe here. I'm not necessarily multiplayer, but I mean, with the AI, I. It's kind of something that I think that a human player would do more to defend itself against an AI as opposed to an AI thinking smartly to do that against a human player. But human player, yeah, it, it could be pretty lousy. It could be. It could be a, a very good way to have kind of a last stand. Um, you know, I mean, great. We can have that. That can be fringe obnoxiousness, and the just general obnoxiousness can be you have no military units left, uh, your military strength is zero, but, oh, look at these awesome fortifications that you have. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Certainly be a way to kill a lot of units uh, without trouble. Some good. Yeah, so kind of like how I mentioned earlier, where you could maybe use Moksha uh, to actually counter another player's religious play. Like, it looks like he could also be, you know, halfway decent counter to somebody else's aggressive military play so yeah it's more like you play him against the other players than for yourself yeah, unless okay, move, you are going move, for a religious victory and then yeah he's a good one to have yep, spread some units all across ever. the tiles of your capital <laughs> no you can't take this for your dom victory no no in every civ game ever the um you, you can pretty much always declare on the ai and it'll always send units to you so you can always take advantage of defensive bonuses to kill the AI's army and then move in on it while it doesn't have an army. Uh, yep. <laughs> that's been true in every Civ I've played, and I've played most of them. And it's still true in Civ 6. Like, if you declare on an AI, it, it, to the extent that it has military units, it's going to attack you with them. So you can use promotions like this or Victor's plus 5 combat on the defensive intentionally. You're just baiting the AI into killing itself, basically. And then you free run up cities. And for anyone having listened through our extensive coverage of this topic, first off, congrats to you. Have an internet cookie. Um, <laughs> you're probably famished at this point. Dan, can you summarize on behalf of the panel governors? Uh, I certainly can. Governors good, some better than others. You're welcome. Oh, we haven't even talked about one yet. Well, I mean, that's that's the one specific to the Ottomans. And I, I guess I was thinking as, as a primer, like it's, you're only going to have this if you are the Ottomans, but... Okay, for completeness sake, what what about him? He's there. You can use him. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's another, uh, Thank you he's for trolling. Thank you for guy. trolling. I, he's another I military it. guy. So if you're if you're doing a military game. With the Ottomans. With the Ottomans, yes. <laughs> or if you're like modding the game or something, I guess. I mean he gets the plus five uh, combat strength in the city too. Uh and the uh the, the plus ten on attacking defensible districts and stuff is uh nice. 
and he's a more offensive uh, governor than um, Victor because his abilities are you actually can put him in enemy cities and then get a combat bonus when attacking those cities. So unlike Victor, where you have to put him in your cities and he's more defensive, uh, Ibrahim for the Ottomans is like an offensive version of Victor. He is a very nice offensive because like when you put him when you put him in foreign capitals, you get some pretty nice bonuses from his top from his higher tier unlocks. Like uh, you, you can do alliances more easily with him. But the ones that are really fascinating to me are the uh, reduction in grievances from stationing in capitals, and especially. You put them in a foreign capital, and none of the owner cities exert loyalty pressure on your cities. That's that, that's pretty convenient. I mean, Excellent you can play around loyalty with any city. And if you're taking multiple cities at once, the resulting pressure from the captured cities is enough along with your governors to prevent uh, flipping. But with this, you don't have to worry about any of that. Like You can do intercontinental stuff or like really crazy stuff and not have to worry about loyalty at all. So well, yeah, you would, for you a military still game potentially... with the Ottomans, that's pretty nice. You would still potentially have to worry about loyalty coming from other civilizations because you can't put him in every civ's capital. So if you've got like three civs that are applying loyalty to you and you knock one of them out, but the other two are still enough providing enough loyalty pressure to flip your city, then you you still got you know. Well, true. Aid. Most of the pressure comes from one yeah. particular yeah. civ at once, and especially if you're taking a couple cities from the target, and the tar- that specific target isn't putting any loyalty pressure on you. The cities you capture have population, and they do. Uh, impact some cause some loyalty of their own, some loyalty Correct. pressure of their own. So you between that and the governor, it would be very trivial to offset like third party loyalty in most cases. And yeah, there's it, some it, like it, really tight cities, like triangle. Not okay, fine. Then then you might have to care a little. But yeah, it, it, for all practical purposes, the Grand Vizier promotion is going to make it so that you don't have to worry about loyalty when attacking the target. Yeah, in most cases. Or you could just. Trigger an emergency, and then that city won't flip either. There's always that too. You have options, and I think that's kind of what we've got with governors. Was you have options when you think about previous versions of the Civ, right? And we talk about governor. Oh no, that's about you know some automation effort that the AI can do on your behalf. Well, <laughs> in civil, <laughs> which is uh, honestly before Civ Six, I'm like, oh please don't talk to me about governors. Oh please, this you this can is get the much better. Governor to whip for you, and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> but you could. This, you could. <laughs> you could. This is so much better. Where you know what what you are doing, your your you know your choices matter. They absolutely do matter. And everything is viable, right? Like maybe not necessarily in every game, but every one of these governors has their uses. You know, we did say that there are some that you know we all personally feel are like way better than others. But that, you know, then there are the fringe cases. Like I said uh, before, like if you're playing as the Maori, then Reina becomes a much better governor. You know, if you're playing as a, a you know, religious civ, then, you know, Moksha becomes almost a must use uh, at some point in the game, unless, you know, the other players are just not even bothering with religion. So, yeah, every one of them has utility. And every one of them does have a certain degree of versatility, where, again, like Moksha had those military perks, uh, either on the offensive or the defensive. So if you have a governor, you're almost certainly going to be able to find a use for them in a game. <laughs> I just had this really weird thought. Like in 21st century language, there are some of these governors that, you know, you would want to be seen with them because it would improve your status. And other ones, I guess you'd be okay if you followed them on Instagram. But, you know, really. <laughs> and then there's the ones that make you look prettier when you stand next to them. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Is this a, okay? You're talking about their ability, right? Not the artwork. Now, Jason, wait a minute. Now, <laughs> it's almost like when you're choosing what governor and what promotion and where to place them, you're trying to I don't know win the game. Uh, hmm. Why would you? Why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you just want to play the game like you want to play it? Why would you allow the well, you developers and publishers to decide how to win? Huh? Yeah. Exactly. Turn off all the victory conditions. Uh, 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 <laughs> infinite turns. <laughs> My victory condition is I'm still playing this game years later. Thank you. There's uh, <laughs> only one true victory condition, and that is dominant. Oh, I thought you were going to troll and say the one true victory condition is time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's there. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't usually self-troll quite that hard, Dan. Uh, I like trolling <laughs> other people. I don't like self-trolling to that extent. Maybe a little I bit like, now I and like then, Ma- but like, come on. Time? Really? <laughs> I like Mackie's endorsement. It's like, it's there. You know, it's like a zit. You know, it's there, but... Uh, no. It's your what default you? save condition, just in case <laughs> the game board. I mean, they, they might as well just, like, slap you with a wet noodle or something, if you're winning score slash time, but whatever. Oh, well, you might be into that sort of thing. Anyway, victory conditions... <laughs> And on that mental image, you're welcome, Internet. Uh, in Civilization VI, there are there are six, if we're talking Gathering Storm, uh, six victory conditions. We have culture, we have domination, religious, scientific, diplomatic, thank you, Gathering Storm, and time, a.k.a. the score victory. So I'm just going to give a very brief rundown on the different types of victory conditions and what you have to achieve, and then we're going to talk about how you actually go about doing that, beyond the fact that it will take some time and energy and focus. Oh, sorry, I'm making it sound like work. Uh, domination victory is the most basic victory to achieve, one requiring a player to leave their Civ's borders and enter all others. To achieve a domination victory, players must conquer the capital city of every other civilization. So this is not conquest. This is not conquest. This is domination. Just the capitals. And that's really uh, just- in contrast to Civ Five Vanilla, where you could actually win a military victory by default because all the other players captured their own capitals and you were the only one who had your original left. And yay, you just win a military victory without ever having a military. Yeah, you have to actually hold them. So yes, in this game, you actually have to capture the other capitals and hold them. Just like Kenny Rogers saying, you have to know when to hold them. Oh, wait, that was something else. Uh, a religious victory also requires... Uh, a player to leave their Civ's borders, uh, but led by units of divinity, not necessarily metal, although that definitely also helps. To achieve a religious victory, a player's religion must become the predominant religion for every civilization in the game, which, of course, domination can help with. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, you're no longer left. Uh, a religion is predominant if it is followed by more than 50% of the cities in a civilization. A scientific victory is straightforward, one that can be accomplished without having to leave your Civ borders, just a little bit more time involvement here. To achieve a science victory, players must accomplish three major milestones. First, launch a satellite. Second, land a human on the moon. And third, establish a Martian colony. A culture victory is arguably the most difficult victory to achieve. To do so, players must attract visiting tourists by generating high amounts of culture and tourism. Victory is achieved when a player attracts more visiting tourists to their civilization than any other civilization has domestic tourists at home. And then, fine, just for completeness sakes, a time or score victory is, by definition, the longest to complete, to 2050 AD. To achieve a score victory, a player's civilization must survive to the end of the game and acquire the highest score. And that's not era score, that's uh, a different no. type of score, which like feels even more arbitrary. Uh, 
Yeah, Tor has <laughs> never been a good measure of a Civ's position in any Civ game, but it seems like it actually got worse in yeah, instances. I, I, when Gathering Storm <clears throat> was announced and they were talking about the era score thing, like I was kind of hoping that that era score would become the score of victory and your score would be based on era points rather than whatever the heck the points are that the game actually uses because that might actually be a little bit more interesting because it would be more assertive you'd actually have to do things to get the points as opposed to you know just oh have lots of high population cities and you get points yeah <laughs> yeah from what, what i'm hearing from jason for my disappointment i only have myself to blame yeah well i In understand practical <laughs> cases the score victory doesn't exist or most difficulties because if you do nothing, the AI will eventually, although it takes forever, the AI will eventually win something if you do nothing. Uh, takes, even on Deity, it takes the AI way too long uh, to win compared to how it should. But if you do nothing, it will eventually beat you. Uh, so you're, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of time score unless you play on low difficulties and, um, and or you just suppress the AI and then don't win and then use up all the turns, which... Sounds dreadful to me, but it's an option. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, yeah. this game has one victory condition and five pseudo victory, con and the real victory condition. <laughs> oh <dominate>. dear. <laughs> now, why is the real victory condition dominating? The reason is that if you can win domination, uh, you are guaranteed to be capable of winning, or, or almost guaranteed to be capable of winning anything other than religious, by extension. And you can also block religious. Uh, very trivially, if you can win domination. So domination is the the default, because uh, yeah, if the enemy has no cities, they can't win science or culture. They don't. They're not producing any tourism. They're not capable of building spaceship parts or even researching technologies any longer because they're gone. So, or even uh, if you don't capture all their cities, if you just pillage and bomb them back to the Stone Age, they're not yeah. doing much of anything. It becomes very hard for them to produce yields. Plus, just if you take their best cities, and one of those is almost always the capital, it it it's really a crippling blow. So, like, you'd have to be doing something very weird, full of taking somebody's capital and pressure, yet somehow not capable of preventing them from winning science using that same military you just took their capital with. I have yet to see an example of a game where that's true, unless maybe you're just trying to get there so late or something. So, yeah, domination is the default. And by also similar measure, if you're not capable of defending yourself when pursuing religious science or culture, the attacks you, you're going to lose because they're going to take your cities and then you're not going to be able to, to get your victory condition because you don't have any. So, and, uh, military and, is important in Civ. And kind of uh, to, to further back up uh, Phil's point about uh, if you can do domination, you can do any other victory. Uh, I've played plenty of games of, uh, of Civ 6 along with, you know, Civ 5, where I accidentally trip over one of the other victory conditions in my pursuit of a domination victory. Because you, you know, again, you wipe out the other Civ's culture and tourism, and then suddenly your tourism by default. Uh, yep. is better than everybody else's, and yeah. you're like one or two capitals away from the domination victory, and you've just suddenly won a culture victory. Or, you know, similarly, a religious victory, because you've wiped out all of the religious pressure that all of the other cities are generating, and now every city is your religion without you even having had to have done any religious spreading of your own. So, yeah, it, it's it's entirely possible and plausible that you might just accidentally trip over another victory condition in your pursuit of domination. Oh, one word of caution, though, uh, on regards to religion. You do not want to conquer civs in a, in, in a sequence where you create a scenario where you and the nation who spread a religion to you are the only two left alive. Right, Dan? Correct. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the it's inverse is you can accidentally trigger somebody else's religious victory yeah, through yeah, your yeah, don't own give someone else a religious victory. And the way you deal with that is uh, you let an AI spread religion so that it's dominant in your borders, then you would conquer that AI um, before you finish everyone else off. As long as you do that, then uh, you can pretty well kill any other missionaries <laughs> coming into your land, and the nation with the religion that's dominant in your sieve doesn't exist anymore. So now you're impervious to religious victory. But yeah, don't don't make the mistake of giving somebody else a religious victory by uh, taking care of the other civilizations for them while you're following their religion. Well, yes. Yeah, that, that's a strategic choice. Uh, the tactical choice is just to disable that victory condition, but that's something that's other consideration altogether. Yeah, you, you, can, you can if you're soft. Uh, disable the uh, victory condition, you please. Lol, 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 lol. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course. But I would say... Wow. With regards to any setting in Civ at all, especially in a single-player game, play the way you want to play. Play the way that you enjoy it. I don't care yep. what you pick for that. Even though I disagree with Disasters on 4, for example, if that makes the game more fun, you do it. I just won't play <laughs> in a multiplayer game with you. But, I mean... <laughs> or if you do, you will just military roll them. Yeah, I guess. But I don't think I would join any serious... I wouldn't join a competitive game with Disasters turned way up. Because it's kind of... Uh, contraindicated to an actual competitive game but for single player if you just want to play with the lulls you know sometimes people people want to do that then yeah by all means so yes if uh, you did not accidentally trigger someone else's religious victory you might be trying to pursue a religious victory of your own in which case you're basically just doing the domination victory but with apostles and missionaries and faith instead of units and production uh, still some units in production too because it's a lot easier to well, yeah. wipe the religion out of a conquered city that's that you control than it is to just get rid of it while the uh, AI still controls it. Well, 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 wait a minute. Are you saying there's a connection between spreading religion and you know going for domination? That there's actually a connection. Well, is, is there anything in history that possibly proves this? I, I'm not really sure. Oh, yeah, it, it, it it's probably one of the reasons that the theocracy government has two military and two economic slots <laughs> in uh instead of having you know more or uh, less military slot. Um, so, yeah, it, it religious goes either way. You can either play that, you know, turtling, or you can play it, like, hyper-aggressively, in which case uh, you might accidentally trip over the domination victory uh, while you're going for it, uh, if you are playing hyper-aggressively. Like, it might actually be easier to just get the domination victory than to finish the religious victory in some cases, yeah, or vice say. versa. You don't really take the last capital by accident, per se. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you, you put yourself in a position where it might just be easier to do that than to spread the religion into that last uh, civilization. Yeah. Uh, in which case, I think you also, you know, basically win the religious victory by default. Um, oh, but yeah, you this need one. You found your own religion for this. This is the only one where you need to do something. Yes, this is the only. Uh, victory condition that you can actually be made ineligible to compete for very early in the game, especially on the higher difficulty levels where the AIs found religions ridiculously early and good luck getting one of your own unless you have your sieve has some kind of inherent bonus towards uh, towards getting one. And uh, if you happen to be playing as uh, the Congo, then, uh, hey, you just aren't allowed to compete for a religious victory at all because you yep. can't found a religion. Uh, even capturing another Civ's holy site does not like let you claim their religion as your own and then play the religion game as if that was your religion, which was something that you could do in Civ 5, but I think Civ 5 did not have a religious victory, so 
uh, it was kind of moot. You could do uh, it in Civ Four as well, and Civ Four had a religious victory, uh-huh. broken yeah, as correct. it was. You could actually win that way. Yes, uh, but not in Civ Six. If you did not generate a great profit early in the game and found your own religion. Uh, then you do not get to compete for this victory. If you're Arabia, then you have that special ability where you automatically get the last profit, so you will you know, be guaranteed to be eligible for this victory uh, if you're playing that Civ. Um, so yeah, there's, there's one Civ where you always compete for that victory, one Civ where you can never compete with that victory, and then everybody else, it's uh, depending on the victory level of, or uh, uh, difficulty level of the game, it can be a real crapshoot whether or not it's even viable to go for it, because uh, if you invest early in those holy sites and then you end up not getting a religion, like that's a large opportunity cost. And, you know, then you limit the number of districts that you can build in those early cities. And uh, yeah, it's a it's it's almost like trying to go for a wonder. Right. And then having the other sieve beat you to it by one or two turns. It, it's the same sort of thing when, you know, going for a religion early in the game. Unless you're Arabia and Arabia's bonus is pretty lackluster on low to mid difficulties. But because the AI likes rushing out religions so quickly, and it gets them pretty fast on the high difficulties, you actually do get that profit in a reasonable time frame. So right. uh, if you're going for a religious victory and you want to do it on a high difficulty, Arabia is a pretty good choice, just because you're guaranteed to have access to it. Right. And then one of the f- uh, funny things about the Civ AI is I don't think the Civ AI knows how to play Arabia, because I almost always see them uh, just building holy sites and stuff like that at the beginning of the game anyway, and yep. founding an early religion instead of realizing that they could just wait and do other things that might be more useful, uh, because I guess they the leader has a high flavor for religion, so he builds all the religious stuff without realizing that uh, his ability means he doesn't have to. You can wait. Yeah, there's a lot of things the AI doesn't realize, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, but yeah, if you're going to do the religious victory, you're probably going to want lots and lots and lots of apostles, uh, which means the wonder Mont St. Mikel is a very good wonder to pursue because it lets you adopt, uh, or take any promotion with your apostles, which can be a big difference maker. So you can, uh, instead of randomly having a choice between three, every one of them is available to you. And, uh, you know, that means, or wait, no, Mont St. Mikel is the one where you get the martyr automatically, right? I forget which one it is. I don't I think there's, path, really. there's one wonder that gives you all of the promotions available and another wonder that just always gives you martyr, and I forget which one is which. Uh, but in any case, uh, go into the Civilopedia and figure out which of those two wonders is which and uh, make sure you build those because having well-promoted or having the right promotions on your apostles makes a huge difference in terms of uh, spreading religion. Another wonder to consider would be the Hagia Sophia, which would give your missionaries and your apostles an additional charge. Yes. And then uh, as you go through the game, there's also the various uh, era dedication bonuses and the uh, exodus of the evangelicals is uh, evangelicals uh, is always a good one to take if you're pursuing a religious victory because it uh, will just speed along the uh, production and function and utility of all of your missionaries and apostles. You mentioned the theocracy government earlier, Jason. This will reduce the cost of purchasing religious units. And, well, I mean, for that matter, everything else, too. But, of course, you reduce the cost of purchasing religious units means you can field more religious units more quickly. Correct. And uh, the religious victory is uh, the one that's probably the one that's winnable or the earliest in the game. Uh, if you are very aggressive with it, uh, you can probably get your, your quickest uh, win turn counts with this 
or with uh, domination, depending on on how you play it and map conditions and stuff like that. Yeah, those two would definitely be the fastest. As opposed to science, which probably takes the longest. <laughs> yeah, it's because you gotta go to space. Dan had the the short version of it in the beginning that launch a satellite, land a human on moon, establish a Martian colony, but with rise and fall that changed, and they added. It's like two separate packages of things. You do those three things first, but you also have to do the what's kind of the classical one from the original Civ, where you have to launch. I mean, back then it was the Alpha Centauri expedition. It's the Exoplanet expedition, and you do uh, you do have your turn weight reduced by doing two special projects: the range laser station, terrestrial laser station. Uh, they will increase the speed of the craft because I think this is meant to be one of those solar sail type things, so it's like pushing it faster. Yes. Yeah. So, but you uh, just you know, you're kind of cutting in and out a lot, at least on my end. Mackie was cutting out a little for me, but not terribly. Well, hopefully this is a bit better. Oh, it's a bit better. Okay, those two give it one light year per turn. Something, but I'm forgetting what the other one is that gets an extra increase. But you can get up to three light years per turn. A, it's going to take 50 light years to get there. You still have to wait. Even once you launch it, you still have to wait. <laughs> but you have to go through basically everything before a few... Not everything, but the bulk of the tech tree. That takes a long time, even if you have a good snowball science thing going. It still takes a long time because later techs are so And then you also have to build all of the yeah. uh, actual stuff. And uh, the spaceports are like one of, if not the most expensive districts yes. in the game. Yeah, and so. th- th- yeah, this is where Pingala comes in handy if you put it in the <laughs> city with the, sta- with the spaceport and it has the space racing. He's like, okay, now we can accelerate this a little bit. But they're, they're all expensive projects. And then you have to launch it. And then you have to wait. And, and hopefully AI doesn't come to you. And, uh, an era dedication that I think also can speed up the production of spaceports and uh, space. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, wonder so. if the Pingala thing is better, or if you would get more benefit out of taking the benefit from all of the industrial zones within a range promotion. The two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I was going to say, do both. Oh yeah, I guess you're right. It's been a long time since I've cared about space. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> so yeah, Pingala will be helpful for the increase in space uh, program projects in the city, but in order to get those spaceports up and running first off, that could be something where Liang could be helpful towards constructing the district. But yes, so because it's going to take a while for you to go, as Mackie said, to go through the tech tree to get every little thing that you need in terms of being able to do something to ultimately complete these steps, then the sooner that you can start building the spaceport districts, the better. So by the time you get to that particular technology, you have at least one spaceport that can be going and if it's managed to construct the spaceport then it should be able to have decent production in order to be able to go through all of these steps of launching the satellite human on the moon you got the martian colony and the exoplanet expedition and then ultimately reaching the exoplanet yeah and and the um the space victory also does you know get benefited from other you know play styles as well like it's not just going you know beelining for science although that is a big part of it because if you have a lot of faith in gold generation you can also be patronizing great people and there's uh, quite a few engineers and scientists late in the game that also uh boost like the production of spaceports and uh, spaceship parts and things like that yes so you, you do you, you want to 
be a little bit well-rounded if you're going to go for this victory. And you also have to have a military, right? Because if you launch your spaceship and then someone comes in and kills all your cities, Phil, uh, then you don't get to... <laughs> nope. Yep. You have to You have to get it launched. You have to defend yourself. And you have to have done a lot of research and have a really heavy production. I guess you can amuse yourself in the meantime by conquering the planet, but just be careful not to trigger that before you actually get to space. Yeah, just don't take the last couple of capital. And don't accidentally trigger a culture victory because everyone else's uh, tourism and culture is now crap and you've got like 90% of the cities in the uh, planet. Yeah, although if you don't invest anything into tourism, because like culture doesn't by itself get you a, uh, a culture victory, you need the tourism. So if you right. just avoid investing in tourism, you can almost always avoid that, at least on higher difficulties. But the thing is, you are going to need, uh, you know, theater squares like to generate culture, you know, to get through the civic tree, which means at some point you're going to accidentally uh, spawn, you know, a writer or an artist or a musician. And if you have it, like you might as well, you know, create the great works and put them in your cities. I mean, I guess you could trade it away for something, you know, like a crap ton of gold or resources or something if the. That's useful or if you to want you, to be but... sure you win, just just don't. Or if you want to be sure you want a specific victory condition, just, to, just leave them. It's not yeah. optimal, but I mean, if you're stalling out a game to so win a specific victory condition, you're not playing for optimization anyway. Just just don't. You're fine. I forgot about the International Space Station thing, which would actually, uh, if you get the top tier of that, you get three more light years per turn and 40% production towards city projects would include you doing things like spaceship parts. And... As you get deeper in the, the like future tech gives you every time you complete future tech, that's another 5%. So you eventually get there kind of, you know, you keep accumulating those things. There's also a 30% production boost towards city projects, which would include the space ones at the tier four synthetic technocracy government, which was introduced in gathering storm. And more specifically, the space race projects can be boosted by uh, a couple of great scientists, uh, Carl Sagan and Stephanie Kolick. And there are one, two, three great engineers that provide uh, bonuses to space race projects, which, of course, if you have industrial zones and definitely a science, you're going to be wanting industrial zones, which can then help you get these great engineers. That's kind of the thing that that religious definitely benefits from also thinking about tactics from domination. And with regards to science, you know, as Jason was saying, it's not just about the science, it's also about your production in order right, to be able to you, you got to have that otherwise it's like hey guys i've got the tech can we wait until uh you know can we wait about 90 100 turns no yeah you absolutely <laughs> need decent production to go to the uh the science victory but uh, again as i mentioned it also helps to have good gold good faith generation you know you want to have good uh culture generation so you can get those late game civics that uh boost uh, the space race. So yeah, you, you need a, you want a little bit of everything. Mostly science, but a little bit of everything. And you need units to protect you from Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and no, people you like don't Phil. need that. Just 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 don't build the units. That'll be fine. Nothing bad will happen to you. Probably. You have to defend from Phil or his uh, AI shadow equivalent. <laughs> so five uh, Chaka theme starts playing. Mm. The one type of victory condition that I did not introduce at the outset was diplomacy, and that's because it came with the Gathering Storm expansion. But okay, it, it's relatively straightforward to talk about, I think. Yeah. So the way you play diplomacy in Civ Six is you just conquer. Okay. I knew you. So, 
this is actually a weird mini game in that you mm-hmm. a lot of your like you have to predict how the others are going to pick things for to get your stuff. Yeah, and unlike well Civ Five, uh, Civ Six doesn't have all those handy World Congress features where you can actually like bribe people into voting for things or like see what they're going to vote for in advance. Uh, so it's a lot harder to predict those things in Civ Six than it was in Civ. Would you actually get you you get resources towards the diplomatic victory condition for guessing correctly as well? I mean, you can also like beat it out of people, um, which is certainly the more reliable approach if you just want to make sure you win the game because. You know, then you're winning the game anyway. But yeah, like it, it, knowing the AI's tendencies will take you a long way with the diplomatic victory. With a diplomatic victory, you almost want to be wherever possible, curing diplomatic favor. So when it comes time for the World Congress and those resolutions, where you're going to get one diplomatic victory point for each winning outcome, you can help influence that outcome so that you end up getting the point. But just Phil is saying, I was also getting at typically that's not going to be enough, particularly. You know, you might have really good, you know, diplomatic uh, favor, but if all the other AI are not voting with you, you're probably not going to be successful. Yeah, and then there's a handful of wonders that uh, give you uh, diplomatic victory points. Like, I think the Statue of Liberty is four. I think there's a couple other wonders throughout the uh, tech tree that give you, like, uh, one or two. Yep, um, uh, the Patala Palace before that gives you one. The Mahabodhi Temple gives you two. Yeah, and one of the things that I've actually found recently that's kind of funny about the uh, uh, diplomacy victory is that uh, you can actually get a decent chunk of diplomatic victory points by playing as undiplomatically as possible. Because if you are capturing city-states and capturing cities or forcing your religion on other people, they're going to declare emergencies against you. And if you have the military might, or uh, in the case of the religious emergencies, the religious strength to fend off those emergencies, I think you get diplomatic victory points for having completed them. Yeah, and ultimately you need to reach a certain threshold of diplomatic victory points. It's 20 on standard speed, and surprise, the first player to earn this requisite number becomes the world leader and wins the game. Yep, and uh, the game was changed at some point. I think originally when Gathering Storm came out, it was like 10, and uh, it was like it was really hard to win the uh, diplomacy victory because there were like one or two things that you basically had to do or else there was no way you were going to get enough points. Uh, but they upped the point total to 20 and sprinkled more sources of victory points uh, across the game. So uh, it actually is possible to to still win that without necessarily having to do those couple of things that give you the, the biggest chunks of points. And then with just perhaps a couple of uh, victories to go, culture, culture is the one that is the most misunderstood. It's also a little mini game. It is also a little mini game. Part of it is also the poor maybe be a strong word, but if you're trying to learn about the culture victory from saying the game itself and the civil PDA, you're probably going to be lost. And I want to credit a video from Potato McWhiskey, which a Mega Bears fan came across, entitled Rock Bands vs. Naturalist, which is better for tourism. That was published in November of 2019. And in 18 minutes, I learned more about the culture victory than I did in the previous three years that the game has been out. <laughs> Ditto here. And, and feel a part of me was like, wow, Dan, why didn't you figure this out before now? But part of that was just having the the, the drive to do what 
Potato McWhiskey ultimately did, which was trying to figure it out because it was something that he wanted to pursue. And eventually, I mean, my mind generally is, look, culture is good for civics. And civic is good for insert other victory condition here. Um, not so much about the culture victory ex- itself. So I went through the video and I tried to condense as much as possible what was being said. And seeing as how, th- I mean, this is a a primer as well. So as much as I have some pretty detailed notes here, I'm going to condense my condensed version as well, because sometimes some of this actually is better off explained in a visual medium uh, than just an audible one. But suffice to say... We highly uh, recommend checking out Potato McWhiskey's uh, video. Again, it is uh, Rock Bands versus Naturalists, and it is on YouTube. So please do check it out. It's It's a good watch. And he has a lot of other great videos as well. So yes. Uh, Civ and non-Civ related. Now, every civilization has three tourist types. You've got your domestic, foreign, and visiting. So your domestic is defense that you gain by generating culture per turn. They build a civilization's culture tower. Foreign uh, tourists are from your departed domestics because they've been lost as they've been lured by another player's culture generation. And they help build that player's tourism tower. So imagine a civilization's domestic tourism generated from their culture as if they are building a tower. So again, every time they get enough culture to generate a domestic tourist, their tower gets a little bit taller. Now imagine all the domestic tourists stacking on top of each other. Every civilization is doing this, and everyone's tower is at a different height because everyone has generated a different amount of culture. What you're trying to do when winning a tourism, I mean, it's a culture victory, but really in tourism victory here, tourism is to use tourism pressure, which is individually calculated against each tower. If you steal blocks from another person's tower and build a new tower building those stolen blocks, then that means your tower is taller and their tower is smaller. So, great, Dan. Thanks for the towers. What does this have to do with the units in the game? Well, this kind of gets to like natural parks versus rock bands, and in turn, the naturalists. So in his video, Potato and Whiskey describes this as, think of national parks as undermining the other players' culture towers because national parks apply their tourism to every other player in the game. Rock bands, on the other hand, can be thought of as like a SEAL team targeting a block rate at a particular tower. They steal blocks from only one tower, which makes that particular tower shorter and your offensive tower taller. So... Potato McWhiskey argues that it's best to target rock bands against the player with the biggest culture tower since you need to make your tourism tower taller than their biggest culture tower. Uh, Researching the computing technology and environmental civic both increase the base tourism by 25%, so combined 50%. Online community policy card is an economic one. uh, social media civic in the information era, where each civilization to which you're sending a trader receives 50% more tourism than you. So with that in mind, national parks are better in the early to mid game when stealing as many blocks as possible is the goal, and the late game rock bands are better when you only have one person to beat and you need to steal blocks specifically from their tower. It's kind of analogous to the difference between religious pressure and uh, missionaries. You know, you've got the religious pressure that just passively spreads your religion. And if it's really strong, hey, maybe you don't even need missionaries. But more than likely, you're going to need to send missionaries out to the other civs that aren't getting much uh, religious pressure from you because they're way the heck far out there. Uh, and you send your missionaries there to do, you know, targeted uh, faith dumps on them. 
Yeah, uh, national parks and rock bands do fundamentally the same thing, which is converting faith into tourism. National parks apply their tourism to every civilization in the game, every single turn, the value of which is based on the appeal of all of the tiles added up, whereas rock bands apply their tourism to a single civilization right now. Rock bands do not generate base tourism, they generate direct tourism against a civilization, which is not affected by modifiers. So and- again... Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna, and, and it's also important to note that the national parks have other uh, tertiary benefits, uh, like for instance, they provide amenity as well. So uh, even if you're not playing a tourism game, like national parks are still good to have uh, and have as early as possible because they're going to help your cities uh, grow faster and be more productive anyway. You can buy yourself time if you're losing a culture victory. So you're like, okay, I got to defend against a culture victory. If you as Potato McWhiskey phrases it, murders civilizations uh, since that removes all of their tourists from the game, even the ones that have already been taken by other players, which effectively cuts everyone's tourism generation, since killing a civilization doesn't make it cheaper to earn tourists, but rather more expensive. So really, again, culture is your defense against someone else going for a culture victory. Your culture is a defense against tourism. And then your tourism is your offense against someone else's culture. And you want to make your tourism tower tall and their culture towers small. And in general, uh, tourism is generated by mostly great works, uh, but also can come from wonders or uh, uh, other effects in And personally, I think trying to, even looking over my notes, trying to explain beyond that definitely goes past the primer level and or, you know, what a picture is worth a thousand words or a screenshot as the case may be. (laughs) The explanation is a lot easier to understand with the visual aids that, again, uh, Potato McWhiskey put in the video. So, again, definitely if you don't understand how the uh, tourism victory works or even if you think you understand it and, like, you just want to make sure that you actually understand it, you're probably still going to learn something from this. So, definitely. Sorry, what was that, Jason? You were saying definitely... Definitely check out that video. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And then lastly, if you kind of forget about all those other victory conditions and you haven't disabled this victory condition, then you could also win. I'm trying not to put air quotes around it, but I kind of can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> win by... <laughs> well, you could play until the timer runs out for the game. And at that point, you could also win by score if you accumulated the most points and i'm not even sure how the points work like line is anyway the points don't count but <laughs> i was just thing. i was about to make a reference to that myself <laughs> uh um i guess there- my summary is like at the beginning it's there <laughs> it's, it's literally the game's backup default if you don't do anything else, you can at least, if, and if no ai has come up to win it and you know phil was commenting earlier about the ai being really slow to get the victory you could just win by surviving long enough. Well, you don't have to just survive. You do have to do a little bit more than survive because well, you do have yeah. to have the good score, which does require yes. you to have a, a decent civilization going. Probably in some cases, the the best civilization in the game in terms of like population and you know various uh, statistics like that. But yeah, in general, the time score isn't a victory in and of itself. It's just there to make sure that games don't end without there being a winner. Yeah, you have to have some form of winning. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in addition to error score points uh, for score, you get 15 points for each wonder owned. You get five points for each city, five points for each great person, 
Three points for each civic. Uh, two for each technology research. For each district own, uh, that's doubled if it happens to be a unique district. Uh, you get one point for each building, including the palace. You get one point for each uh, citizen in your player's empire. And you also get kind of a one-time ten point for founding a religion. And then speaking of religion, you also get uh, two points for each foreign city following a particular player's religion. So you get all of those things added up. And again, whoever has the highest score wins. If two or more players have the same score, civics are the highest priority tiebreaker, followed by cities, districts, population, great people, religion, text, and then wonders. And I would imagine that a tie score is exceedingly unlikely. Exceedingly unlikely, yes, but we, we think... Uh, 2K and Firaxis for thinking of that possibility so the game just doesn't bork. Uh, <laughs> or what have you. Or declare no winner. <laughs> You're yeah, both I've, the winners. I, I've, I've played enough board games where like the rules don't explicitly define how tiebreakers work, and it's just like, okay, well, we just finished a board game, and we don't know who actually won. So, eh. Whoever yells the loudest. Wait, no, that's a house yeah, rule. Yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> my house, so my well rules. Oh, I see how it is. <laughs> I own the game. I get all the tiebreakers. <laughs> oh, you got host advantage. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. We're playing the Battlestar Galactica board game. It's, well, who who's alive at the end of the game? Are you still here? <laughs> Do you know you're still alive? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, oh, you fell asleep? Oh, well, too bad. No, no, no. You don't win? Yeah, it was your opportunity cost. You won sleep because the game's been going on forever. <laughs> I actually do win. Huh. And now there might be people listening. That's thank you so much for going through all the victory conditions, Polycast, in that detail. This just tells me that I want to pursue absolutely none of them, and I'm just going to play how I've always been playing. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> Leave them all turned on. Just go with the flow. Well, yeah, again, you don't have to play this way. <laughs> you don't want to. It's still good to know what the other players are potentially doing because, you know, you don't want to get into that situation where uh, someone just all of a sudden wins the game and you have no idea how the heck it happened. Also, uh, a, a tangentially related tip, if you're not really concerned about a victory condition or you have won a victory condition and you want to keep on playing, but I guess actually it's more about no victory condition has been met yet, and you think, oh, if I go and disable score victory, then I can just keep playing however long I want. Actually, no, there still is a default turn limit. So if you want there to be no turn limit, then you need to tell in the game setup, no turn limit. Which, by the way, if you select no turn limit, it automatically disables the score victory. So you can save yourself a check, and you can also save yourself a heartache when you get to like turn 330 on a quick speed game, and things are finally starting to happen with some jet bombers on your continent, and suddenly, game over, and there is no option for one more turn. It's grayed out. <sighs> Not oh, that I would you, know. You can't just do one more turn after the, the timer runs out? I thought you still uh, could... Uh, in that in that particular case, uh, no. Oh, okay. Well, no, yeah, I sucks. I had disabled. The thing is, I had disabled score victory, but not disabled the turn limit. Ah, okay. So the game still ends no matter what, and there's no option for one more turn. That's right. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I do have a save game that would be really nice to resume at some point. I mean, my gosh, maybe there's a mod out there that does something with it, I don't know, but short of that possibility, um, you're out of luck. 
I mean, I guess it was just kind of like, well, I guess I should start another game. And I totally did start another game, and I'm totally not past that turn limit because I changed that setting. It totally dissuaded me from trying that again. <coughs> but then again, I was also playing in a game where only domination is enabled, so... <laughs> it may take me a thousand turns, but I'm dominating. I am trying to give the AI a chance, okay? I mean, they almost all have giant death robots. I mean, they don't know how to use them, but they have them. So I'm just, you know, yeah, <laughs> just trying to make AI things fair. Know how to use a lot of things. It's true. Airplanes, eh, what are they good for? But Dan, if the AI knew how to play the game, then they might beat us more often, which means we wouldn't play as much when we just like to play to see how much they derp. Well, maybe computer, that's the reason why. Or your computer would just catch on fire because uh, it would be too resource intense. Or your uh, turn processing would be like 10 minutes long. Well, hey, it gives you a chance to get up and stretch and have a snack, a little bio break, you know. Not necessarily true. in that order. Yeah, that's true. And also, please, not necessarily simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> bathroom pizza! <laughs> yes, please do get up and take bathroom breaks periodically. I know how easy it is to forget to do that. Just one more turn, and the next thing you know, the sun is coming up, but there's a cue for you to get up and stretch. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to Polycast episode 356, which will now conclude, uh, almost certainly, our primers for new players. So I hope that uh, this helped some uh, some players who jumped onto the Civ bandwagon with the console releases of the game, and also hopefully helped some players who've been playing the PC game for uh, however the heck long uh, they've had it. Uh, I have been your regular host, uh, Mega Bears fan. The me and team unfortunately had to step out a little bit early on account of a migraine headache, so uh, we wish him a speedy recovery. I am also a migraine sufferer, so I uh, sympathize with you there, Phil. I hope you feel better soon. And our other uh, guest co-host, Dan. Other guest? Wait a minute, there was another guest talking? Anyway, uh, now that we are primed, it's time for the paint. Are we rolling into the shop? What? <laughs> Along with... You're allowed to talk over that, you know. Along with Makalua. Who's going to get better audio cues, I swear. Civilization 3, 4, 5, 6, and Beyond Earth sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.